yourself approved unto God. You know, it's one thing to be a reader of the Bible, but sometimes it's another thing to be not just a reader. Hey, do we have the new baby in church today? I see the mother there. What are you doing here? Well, well, show that baby, will you? Come on up here for a second. No, we want to get a look at that thing. (laughs) This is a real one. Wow, fantastic. Stand up here. Oh, wow, this it is. Praise the Lord. Congratulations. Can I pray for you and your family? Sure. Yeah, Father, thank you for giving birth, giving life. Thank you for the joy of a child coming into the world. Pray, Lord, for the parents. Lord, give them gravity and sincerity and love and care for this child. And may uh, this child grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And may this child be blessed by the church family. And we, Lord, ask that in due time it would please you to save this dear little one and make this child one of your own. Lord, we just give you praise and thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, since we're in Timothy, it does say, it says uh, that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. There's another good verse of the importance of knowing the Scriptures. You know, when I uh, was first introduced really to solid biblical Christianity, um, the brother that uh, I got the closest to and who I can, I think in a sense, call him my spiritual father because he had the most influence upon me at the time of my conversion um, at that time, when I started to attend his church, um, he was about to start a Bible study on the book of Romans. And amazingly, he said in preparation, and he wasn't saying this boastfully, but he had said that a month in advance of teaching the Bible study, he spent a whole day, well, I shouldn't say the whole day, but he read the book of Romans through every day for 31 days straight in preparation for teaching the Word. Man, that impressed me. Showed me the importance of knowing the Word. And I can say as a person in the pulpit, and others who step into the pulpit as well, don't you want to say, amen, it's right, that when we start studying the Word and really get into the the nitty-gritty of the Scriptures, it seems like it it blooms. And like, wow, I never saw that before. It's so rich, it's so deep, it's a mine, a treasure that has so many wonderful treasuries inside of it that we we can't speak as highly enough of, of it as we would like to. And we learn so much when we study the Word. So I want to encourage you all, as we're going through the book of First Timothy, to read the book of First Timothy. Uh, often, uh, especially in preparation, somebody wrote me this morning and said, what are we preaching on this morning so I can prepare myself for what's going to be spoken on? And so that encourages me, and I hope we all take a similar attitude in the importance of being not just a reader, but a student of the Word. So this morning, this afternoon, we're going to deal with 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, 19, and 20. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. He had said earlier, my child in the faith. We're not sure if Paul meant by that. His spiritual son, as Paul brought the gospel to him and his conversion was accredited to Paul's preaching, or is he just simply a younger man in the faith who's carrying the faith out in his ministry as Paul was? Either way, he's addressed as my child 
in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Well, you know, this is the week after Christmas. Last Sunday was the first time I think I've, I've ever missed Christmas at Sovereign Grace Chapel. But I did have the opportunity to visit my daughter in Tennessee, and I was asked to preach uh, at that church. And never having preached anywhere else uh, on a Christmas Sunday, um, I wasn't really so prepared to preach uh, there, but I was asked to shortly before I arrived. And I decided that I would preach on, and I gave it this title, and I assured the congregation that it, I was not a heretic and I was not preaching heresy, but the title of it was The Reincarnation of Christ. Where would I go with a heading like that, Todd? The Reincarnation of Christ. Because what had hit me soon before studying the subject of Christ was it says in second, and can we get this verse on the screen? Second Corinthians 5.16. I'd like you to look at it. I don't know if much attention has been given to this verse. I've never heard anyone preach on it. And I have pondered over this myself. If we can get Second Corinthians 5.16 up. Uh, Paul is writing, of course, to the Corinthians. Uh, and he's saying these words. And obviously by him referencing we, he's referring to himself along with others. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. It doesn't matter what translation. Here we go. Paul says this. <laughs> Welcome to... So- no, uh, excuse me. Uh, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though, and I want you to notice this, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, what does that mean? Paul saying, we, in a previous time, had known Christ in the flesh. Or another translation, I think the NIV, if you have the NIV out there, I like the way it puts it. We've known him from an earthly or worldly point of view. A worldly point of view. And Tim, that might have been your case. You knew of Jesus and many of us here who grew up in a Christian home. Most of us, I would say, had some kind of biblical background or church life that we knew about Christ from a worldly point of view. In so many people in celebrating Christmas, to them Jesus is known from a worldly point of view. Only outwardly. They regard the fact that Jesus was born, that he was incarnate even, that he was God that becomes man. The word incarnation means to be enfleshed. The Greek word on incarnate together means enfleshed because God is spirit. That's what Jesus is and was. He became in due time incarnated, enfleshed. He became a human being. And in doing such, he took on him the capacity to die so that in dying he could die the death of others and save them from their sins by 
voluntarily taking our sins in his own body and suffering the due penalty that was for our sins. Hallelujah to that. A substitute. But we only knew him from an outward worldly point of view. But the reincarnation of Christ is not now just simply looking at Jesus in a manger, but Christ who has risen from the dead now, spiritually you could say, incarnates himself in the lives of individual people. Scripture says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We beheld, John says, his glory and we beheld him as one who was tabernacled in the flesh. But we see Jesus in a different way now. We don't have the eyes of John where we can physically see him. Or maybe Paul when he says, though we have known him after a worldly point of view. Could Paul have known of or seen Jesus before he met him on the road to Damascus? Could that verse be suggesting that possibility? Though we once regarded Christ from a worldly point of view, could Jesus, could Paul, <coughs> Saul then, <coughs> have been there at the crucifixion? Could he have been there? I mean, we know that he grew up in Jerusalem. Well, he grew up in, in Tarsus first, but then he came to Jerusalem. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and he was taught in all of Judaism under the rabbinic guidance of Gamaliel. So he was a Jerusalem resident. Why would he not have been at the crucifixion? He apparently was connected with the Sanhedrin because he held the cloak of those that stoned the first martyr of Christianity, Stephen. He was somehow associated, maybe not a full-fledged member, because if he wasn't married, technically you couldn't be a member of the Sanhedrin, but somehow he may have been an assistant if we can call him that. So he too may have been there and seen Jesus from a worldly point of view. I'm not being dogmatic about it, but he's saying that we and others would have known Christ from a worldly standpoint. But when you get converted, he's now within you. He's been reincarnated in you, risen from the dead, but he says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. So we have Christ incarnated in us. And the reason why I mention that is because we're going to get to something here that's going to, uh, I think, relate to what I just said. This charge, verse 18, I entrust to you my child, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Okay, this is where Roman Catholicism and Episcopalianism get their idea that somehow, through the laying on of hands, there's a communication that's given to the recipient upon whom their hands have been laid. So it goes from one clergyman, so to speak, a high office clergyman, like from a cardinal who lays hands on the bishop, who lays hands on the priest, now there's this consecrated communion communion that's given to these individuals who now can consecrate 
The elements, for instance, and make what is natural into supernatural, what is profane into what is holy, and that's how they interpret this particular passage. The succession of ecclesiastical power and authority. How? Because it says, my child, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now we'd have to look at, if we can get up quickly, First uh, Timothy 4, 14, you will see what I mean about this prophesying and this may be communication of gifting and empowerment to the individual who's receiving this sort of communal uh, ecclesiastical blessing. Very good. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now those elders would likely have been the elders of, of Ephesus had laid hands on Timothy. The question that we're asking now is the gift that Timothy had, was it given to him by prophecy or was the laying on of the hands a gift that prophesying and laying hands upon the individual just simply was a confirmation? In my opinion, I think the latter. I don't think that there can be any external communicating of gifts to individual, it's got to come from above. Every good and perfect gift cometh from above from the Father of lights. And even the gifts that you have, whatever that gift may be, that's something that God gives to you. It's not something that can kind of like presto changeo or, or uh, wave the wand or lay the hands. One brother said it's like laying my soft hands upon your soft head. There's nothing that's going to be communicated in, in that act itself. So there's no spiritual communion that's being granted to the individual. But prophesying or the words of those who were laying the hands on Timothy were giving recognition to him that he had a calling of the Lord to minister to God's people, to lead God's people, and to teach God's people. In other words, Paul is trying to encourage timid Timothy in saying, Brother, you had hands laid on you. The Ephesian elders recognized the gifts that they had, that you had, and they prophesied. They spoke well of you. And now Paul is telling Timothy to act in accordance with the prophecies previously, before he arrived there, of course, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Or before he actually got into the leadership role in the Ephesian church, it was that the local elders had given him this sort of public recognition. And if you look at verse 11 of 1 Timothy 1, can we get that up as well? 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, to draw that, I want to draw that to your attention as well. Um, he says that what he, what verses 6 to 10 talk about the law, how the law is to be used. But the law is to be used in this way, uh, the law that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Or the, the uh, English Standard Version says, for the advancement of the gospel 
in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, what is the key here is that Paul is expecting Timothy to interpret the scriptures in light of the gospel and that he would carry on his personal commission in accordance with the prophecies that were made about him. In other words, live up to the expectations that the body of the leaders have about you so that you can minister to the saints of God and do it in a way that by by them, by what? By the prophecies, what was said about you, the assurance that you have that you are called of God, that you have a God-given authority to be able to speak on God's behalf so that with them you might wage wage the good warfare. We're often referred to as being in a battle. Being a Christian, you mentioned earlier, Tim, about the struggles that he has and likely all of us have in one way or another. You could say that we're in, we're in a battle. We're on a battlefield all the time. There's constant oppression. There's constant attacks. There's my own thoughts sometimes condemn me. I feel guilty of the thoughts that I have. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's a scary verse. I say, man, am I a phony? Am I a hypocrite? Do I look good on the outside, but inside my thought life? I'd hate sometimes to have that thought life of mine be put up on the screen. And maybe you too. It could be scary, right? But praise God, the Bible says that we're supposed to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ which implies that sometimes our thought life can get out of control. What we see, what we hear, can make us go in directions that are contrary to what we know what is best from the Word of God. Now let's read on verse 19. Again, this is a charge. And when someone is ordained, as we call it, to a ministry, deacons, elders, etc., there's a charge that's given to them to fulfill the ministry that they're called to. Well, this is an ongoing charge that Paul is giving in these words by saying to him, holding faith, holding faith, and you can get 1 Timothy 3, 9, Shannon, ready up on the screen. I want to look at that. Holding faith and a good conscience. Those two things are linked with one another. 1 Timothy 3, 9. This is the This is the qualification that a deacon must have, a servant. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear or with a pure conscience. Paul's saying to Timothy, I want that for you. Hold faith with a clear and pure conscience. The mystery of the faith, the faith. There's individual faith that we have, but then there's corporate faith of the body of doctrine that is known as the faith. The faith which was once delivered to all the saints for all time in the book of uh, Jude. Once for all delivered, the faith. What is the faith? On occasion, we'll read together the Apostles' Creed, for instance, which contains all the major fundamental foundational ingredients of the Christian faith that we believe in one God of Father Almighty maker of heaven earth and of all things visible and in, and in one Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified under Pontius Pilate who was buried 
who rose again the third day, who is seated at the right hand of God, and who is coming again to judge the living and the dead at his appearing, etc. That's the kind of thing that contains the body. It's the creed of the church. It's the faith that the saints are to collectively hold in this corpus of literature or corpus of belief doctrine that we all hold. And the way we can hold it is is by way of faith. The title that I give to this sermon is, and I change it from what's in the bulletin, is Holding Tight the Grip of Faith. Holding tight, that's our individual faith, holding the grip of the faith of the saints. It happens, and it's happened in church history, and, you know, when I said earlier that, you know, studying the word, getting deep into it, reading it like Paul says, study or labor hard to understand the word. It's not something that just jumps off the pages simply. You have to do some digging sometimes in concentrating, in praying, in, in checking your concordances, looking up the meaning of the word in their original, compare it with other translation. That's going to bring more of, of the deeper truths of scriptures to the surface for you. Holding faith and a good conscience. I want to read a little section of a commentary that I read that could I could not put it as well as he does, Philip Towner. So I want us to take a, a few seconds here and pass this on to you when Paul says here about the contrasting of authentic Christianity with a false um, type of Christianity. In this section here, Paul is contrasting authentic Christianity as the inward cleansing of the heart that enables the believer to process God's law internally, the new covenant, and the heretical notion of spirituality as adhering to an external framework of the law. That right there is sort of the key to to the whole book of Timothy, that Timothy is faced with those who are Torah zealots. All right? They're trying to promote the law, but not in accordance with the gospel. The law is good and useful and so on, but the law can also be used in an abusive way, and it can become a simple legalistic style of life. And real Christians can fall into that kind of lifestyle and think that this is what pleases God, and it gives you a sense sense of personal self-satisfaction. Well, I went to church today. I read my Bible. I did this. I checked all the boxes off and everything is copacetic. That's Torah type Christianity, all right? But what we want to understand is the internal operations of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. I don't have to tell you to stop fornicating or to tell you to, to stop getting drunk. You have the Holy Spirit of God within you. I'm not saying that we don't exhort one another, but it's a reality that we all have built into us with a new birth. And that's what distinguishes us from those that are professing Christians that are outwardly righteous or understand Jesus from a worldly point of view, but don't have that intimate personal communion. I'll have more to say on that in a second, but let me read on some of these comments that this brother makes. Faith is that posture of trust in God that animates 
the individual's personal relationship with Christ. The good conscience is the organ of decision by which the Christian may move from knowledge of the faith and sound teaching to appropriate conduct. Did you get that? The good conscience, that's the organ of decision. In other words, it's putting feet on the faith that you have. What causes you to do and act the way you do? Hopefully it's out of a good conscience. Your conscience, as he says, is the organ of decision. Now that's not something that's in the raw. It's something that's influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit within me. Because if you and I tried to live the life without the Spirit, forget it. We're doomed. We're just outwardly righteous, but we have no inward reality of relationship to Christ. That's one of the wonderful things about being saved and saved among others is that we have an organic relationship with the Lord and with one another. What binds me to you or you or you or you to me and so on, it's that organic relationship we have because of the new birth and what God has installed within us. It's not something that we fabricated on our own. It's a God-given gift. There's power. There's true love that comes from God that's in us. It's not of ourselves. It's of Him. To God be the glory, right, of what He has done in your life, Tim, Sean's life, in any one of us here that are believers. It's all credited to the Lord. But we do have a conscience and we are expected to keep it sharp. That's why those who were to be deacons had to hold the mystery. There's that word hold again, the mystery of the faith in a good conscience. You know, one at least of David's mighty men. Do you remember them in 2 Samuel chapter 23? That'd be a good Jeopardy question for tonight, by the way. <laughs> Name the 30 mighty men of David's. Well, anyway, one of them, it says of him that his hand froze. I looked the, the, the word up in another translation. King James says cleaved, but other translation says his hand froze to the sword. So you couldn't even hardly pull it out. Remember when you were a kid, I don't know if you still have this problem, when you go shoveling and it's really cold out and you got a grip on, on the shovel and then you try to open, open up your, your wrists and your fingers and it's like, ah, you know that feeling? Well, that's the kind of grip that we should have on the faith that was given to us. Cleave to it. Because you know what can happen? Not that you're going to lose salvation, but you can end up shipwrecked. And that's something I don't think I understood before I started getting deep into this, this chapter here. You know, those things that were, it, 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 that they were endangered by, if they gave up the faith, not faith, personal faith, but faith that keeps the faith is falling into such errors as Arianism, Nestorianism. These are early false heretical teachings and doctrines, Sabellianism, Unitarianism, and all these other isms that come up on the highway of church history and come into lifestyles even of believers today in various forms and ways. The devil wants to distract us. He wants us to to, to turn away. He wants us to loosen up our grip on the faith. 
be a mighty man of Jesus's and hold to the sword of the word. Let me finish what Mr. Tanner has to say here. Um, the good conscience is an ethical description of what the Spirit does within the believer to apprehend God's law. The condition of the conscience is determined by one's disposition toward the gospel by conversion, which suggests the ordering of faith followed by a good conscience. These things are so so wrapped together with one another that they're they're really not distinguished in a sense. They they so intimately relate to one another. The the personal faith, the faith, the good conscience, the cleaving to this so that we can maintain the faith. Now, again, Timothy is a young man. He's with older, likely older, trained, rabbinic-type individuals who who are claiming messianic beliefs that Jesus is the Messiah. And and they genuinely can be saved. When you read through the book of Acts, it reads in Acts 15, for instance, at the Council of Jerusalem, there were priests who obeyed the gospel. In chapter 21, it says about there are thousands who believe but are zealous of the law. Whoa, how can you be a gospel new covenant person and be zealous of the law? It says they were believers. They believed. So Paul's giving Timothy the charge. You got to steady the ship. You got, and what a task he had before him that he had those in the church that were turning away. And we get in the next verse the examples of those that were making shipwreck, shipwreck of their faith, their faith of the faith. All right? I think the context bears that out. Sure, you can use that and say how important it is for me as an individual to keep the faith. We always say that. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep going on. Keep on trucking. Keep pressing on. If you fall, get up again. A righteous man falls seven times and gets up. We can get up because the Spirit of God and God Himself will not leave us. So you might get very depressed about where you are at in your spiritual walk and you may do something that you're ashamed of and you know it's not something that should should mock a Christian. Yes, shame on you, shame on me, but let's not stay down there. God doesn't want us to stay down there. He wants to lift us up higher. If you're wounded, He'll heal you and He'll make you healthier than you were before you were wounded. Those who made shipwreck of their faith, their names are mentioned here. Their Their names are mentioned there. Why? Because it's so important to know good doctrine from false doctrine, right doctrine from error. And there were those whose names are mentioned here, that had to be dealt with. And it's obvious that we know from other passages in the Christian walk in life that we need to be patient towards one another, that we don't all have it all right, and I'm on that list. I know that I know things now today that I thought I knew 10 years ago, and I said, wow, I was wrong 10 years ago. I thought I was right about a verse here, the way I was using it, but it really was not in the context 
uh, of the portion of the Word. This really came to light to me personally. It really made more sense. And that's why you can't, you have to be real careful in taking a scripture out of its context. Text. A text out of the context is a pretext. So one must be careful of that. So Paul is citing now those who, who had made shipwreck of their faith, of the faith, among whom, who were the ones that were doing that? Hymenius and Alexander. Now, Hymenius' name, can you get this up on the screen too again, Shannon? 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 14. I could be wrong, or you might have to go to 15 or 16, where his name is mentioned again, Hymenius and Philetus. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Is it 17? 17. 217 of Second Timothy. Because I want to see his name. See, what, what, was, what was his error? What was wrong? Here it is. And their talk will spread like gangrene. If you allow false teaching to persist in the church, a church that I was in recently, meeting a couple of the members over the number of years, one of them is a, is a full-blown preterist, Another one is a full-blown dispensationalist. And, uh, and I'm not saying that uh, dispensationalism is a heresy. I wouldn't call it that, a heresy. But when you have such a conglomeration sometimes of beliefs, you have to be careful. And one has to know the difference, as we try to distinguish, between what is a fundamental of the faith and a non-negotiable versus something something that is negotiable. As it's been said this way, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. If I'm dealing with a Jehovah Witness, I'm not going to beat him up over the head. I want to have compassion on that erroneous, demonic teaching that that person is holding. We can still be charitable towards them and loving towards them. And we can, with errors that, or kinds of things that may be grayish, we can be, we can debate them. We don't have to divide over them. We can still have liberty. <clears throat> but we must, we must emphasis, emphasize the importance of the unity with important doctrines. The deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the inspiration of the scriptures, the authority of the Bible, the virgin birth, the incarnation. Those things are not negotiables. Those things that we adhere to firmly and will stick up to the end. Went to, uh, for instance, we had a burial service for Brother Wally last, well, a few days ago. And um, because of Wally's history, and he would tell you that in his testimony, he wrote a track that I even have on me. It's one of my favorite tracks. It's called From a Drunk to a Deacon. And I held that track up in the burial service in the a chapel of the veteran cemetery. And um, in preparation for the little time that I was supposed to have or what they give you to have, I thought I would read 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10. And I'll just read a, quote a part of it. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? For neither... Sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor 
practicing homosexuals, and I didn't emphasize that like I just did to you now, and it goes on to say drunkards and thieves and liars and extortioners and so on, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And I said, praise God, there's not a period at the end of that because none of us would be able to go to heaven. But the next verse says, but you are washed. But you are saint. Thank God for the buts, huh? That God butted into your life. But God washed us. He sanctified us and justified us. Well, because I read that passage, practicing homosexuals, the head of the the chapel there of the veterans called the funeral director in a side room and was throwing F-bombs at him and saying, what in the world are you doing bringing this church in here and talking like that about against homosexuals? Well, thankfully, he said, well, he's just reading the Bible. <laughs> All right. And isn't that the way to put it? Don't blame me. My mother used to get on my case when I got saved saying, boy, we like the old Gary, not the new one, because I was born again and my life was changed in such a gl- glorifying way. And I said, you've got to blame God for that. He's the one that saved me. He changed my life. I give him the credit. And in the same way, the Bible is not alterable. What was said back 2,000 years ago is the same today and will be tomorrow, that these are sins against God. Whatever society thinks, whatever modernist and enlightenment people want to promote, they can do that. This is, thus saith the scriptures, practicing homosexuals. And I like that translation better than some of the other ones. Not that I think it modifies it, but I think it hits, hits the point. Because somebody can have a homosexual orientation and not live it out, not act it out. There's no discipline for that. We can have some psychopath heterosexual who's who has continuous sexual desires. Keep them under, brother or sister. Keep them under. I don't want to get into that too much, but I just want to bring that point out. The importance of holding fast, brothers and sisters. The Hymenius and the Alexanders. What does he do with them? Now, we, we have that verse, and can we get that verse back about what they were teaching? Probably both of them, and Hymenius is mentioned in Second uh, Timothy two seventeen, and this is why they were handed over to Satan. That seems like an extreme judgment to put those who were in the faith, professing believers, into the hands of Satan. Second Timothy two verse seventeen. All right. They must hold. No, that's the first. Uh, first, you had it. Right. I, I should be able to memorize that one. Um, they they subvert hope. Uh, their talk will spread like gangrene. There is among them a Hymenius and Philetus. Can you get the next verse up? Eighteen, right after it. Okay. <laughs> among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who have swerved. From the truth, the what? The truth is the faith, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. That's the one that Paul is saying, they must be handed over, whom I have handed over, to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, that expression, handed over to Satan, is the same expression that's used 
in the book of Job when Satan says, uh, he, he's sort of uh, taunting God like, well, you know, you, you have a hedge about him, but uh, let me do And the Lord says, I'm going to hand him over to you. And you know, in the end was better than the beginning. God mysteriously uses Satan for a purpose. Our brother was reading in 1 Corinthians 5 to deliver one unto Satan for what? For the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. For what purpose is it deliver- he delivered to Satan? In this case here, it's uh, in the verse that we have in our reading this morning that they handed over to Satan that they may learn, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How can Satan be used as a tool in God's hand to instruct a heretic to not blaspheme. I don't know that I can explain that to you. Other than saying there are two realms in the world, spiritual realms. There's the realm of the Lord's, where Jesus is the head over all things, and especially of the church, believers. And then there's the realm of the devil. Our brother was reading in 1 Corinthians 5, 13, 11 to 13. It says, Do you not judge them that are within... God judges them that are without. So when someone is the, in the within, in the church, locally, or a church, a believer who, any believer is in the church, whether you're a member of a local church or not. But when the local church is delivering some believer, professing believer, unto Satan, it's like the last straw. You're taking him who is from the within and putting him with the without. Do you not judge those that are within? God judges those that are without. You see what I'm saying? There's the within. Those are the genuine people of God. Those that are without are those that may know Jesus from a worldly point of view. But nevertheless, through Satan, God can somehow use him as an irritant to create, like Israel, when they fell into sin, God took away the judges and put them in the hands of the Philistines and the other Canaanite tribes and when they fell into those tribal hands they ended up getting very oppressed and they end up crying out to the lord and the lord raises up a samson or a uh, a gideon or, or many of these other judges they fall and then they fall to the point that they cry out to god and god can use the philistines the the the, the gershonites and all the other ites that are in the land of canaan for the for the possibilities of the restoration. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, you don't have to put that up on the screen, it says, In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. So there is this battle that Timothy has with false teachers who are using the law wrongfully, and he has the task of trying to set the stage correctly and rid those who are teaching false doctrine to Satan with the hopes that by doing that, if you tolerate it, it's going to be injurious to the church and it's going to cause all kinds of chaos within the family of God. And it's disrupting the truth that there is one faith and that the resurrection has not yet occurred. Those who are full preterists, like Hymenaeus, are saying that Jesus already returned. Already returned. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth, are we? Um, have any bodies come out of the grave? All that are in the graves will hear his voice come forth. That, how did they come up with that? By 
having metaphorical beliefs that this and that happened when it didn't physically happen. It's sort of like Christian science in a way with their, with their theories about reality, not, for instance, believing that sin is really sin. Sin is only in the mind. It's not a reality, etc. That's the kind of thing that you could say Timothy had to deal with with the Hymenius and the Alexander. Now, of course, Alexander's name is mentioned in Second Timothy 4.14 or at least another Alexander. It says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Remember that? Uh, made the, what does he say? Um, may the Lord uh, judge him in that day. Can anybody help me on that? Um, um, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Uh, for the Lord will judge him in that day. Something along those lines is, is what he is saying there. So we have Hymenius' name mentioned uh, uh, one other time. It's the same Hymenius. The Alexander, maybe it's a different Alexander in 2 Timothy 4 because he identifies him as Alexander the coppersmith, probably to distinguish him from this Alexander. But it doesn't really matter. It's not an important point. The main point is that to maintain the integrity, to maintain the integrity of the Christian faith, it's absolutely vital that the church holds tight the grip of faith. May the Lord add his blessing to the word and the preaching of the word and may it invade our souls so that we can be diligent readers of the word, that we can hold fast the faith and that we can have a good conscience so that we can exercise those things that the Holy Spirit puts in our lives in an everyday way. Let's close by standing together and singing in Christ. Oh, no, the last song. Actually, we're going to have music to this song and voices, but this has got to be the New Year's song of Christians. So let's rise together and join in with this music.